Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. And a heads up, this episode contains sensitive content that may be upsetting for some listeners. Please read the warning in the show notes before listening to the episode. If you're new to the My Millennial Money world, you may not know, but I talk about the Sound Financial House. And the premise is to get your solid foundations in your life sorted, then you can build your financial life on top of that. The four foundations are to be cashed up and debt-free. It's to have a spending plan in place or a cash flow system or a budget, whatever you want to call that, a system that works for you. The third foundation is a personal protection package. And part of that is your income and life insurances. And part of this episode today is talking about underwriting and the process of getting insurance. And the fourth foundation is having your wills and estate plan set up four foundations, they're done. And then build your financial house however you like. On today's episode, I'm joined by our resident insurance expert, Phil Thompson from Skywealth. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me, Glennie. Thanks for coming back to the podcast and thanks for joining us in, where were you, bloody Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne? all over the place. Oh, yeah. We did did you big... come to Adelaide? No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. I was in Adelaide. Oh, you did? I didn't go to Hobart. I was had COVID for Canberra and didn't want to go, go to Perth. all the way to Perth. So, you've, you've heard Phil on the podcast before. I believe in getting experts in our corner, in every area of our life. And when it comes to life insurance, it is a complex specialty. And we are just talking about underwriting. But before we do get into this chat, I just want to put out there that every single example and every single comment that we make today, it's so circumstantial and you need to get advice on your own personal situation. As you know, we've got Tao, our show partner on Tuesdays, but I wanted to do this episode with Phil, who is a licensed financial advisor who works with a variety of different insurance companies because... There are cases where different insurers will be most beneficial for different people. Well, that's a good time to run the bump, Nathan. Let's get into this episode. Okay, we're just getting straight into this. So, in the Facebook group, we put up a question around the claims process of for the towel episode. I don't know when that's gone up, but whatever. But a lot of the questions are actually underwriting questions. I'm like, look, Phil, just jump on. We'll just answer these. Uh, If you wrote anonymous, we won't read your name. But James Robson said, what does fully medically underwritten actually mean? And how come our super insurance doesn't have us do it? So, a lot going on there. Yeah, so we'll just touch on underwriting, what that actually means. So, and and kind of just even higher level, what the difference between personal insurance cover is versus like home and contents or car insurance. Like with home and contents, the insurance company has got a lot of data around where you live. Is it a brick house? Is it, you know, what are the tiles on the roof? And if you can provide that data, then they'll have the statistics to understand the claims on that and how likely is it that you're going to be in a floodplain or something like that. The difficulty with personal 
personal insurance cover and what underwriting is, is kind of the art form of going, what is the risk of Glenn claiming on this cover? What is the risk of Phil claiming on this cover? And it's so very personalized um, for each individual person. So when we talk about other questions that we're going to go through, underwriting is a insurance company making a risk assessment. So what is the risk of a future claim? And I will say, Phil, you talked about the home and uh, the content insurance. Absolutely, that policy is underwriting, but it's almost computer underwritten because they've got so much aggregate data, right? The most common way that you might feel the underwriting process in your day-to-day life is when you insure your car, they say, is there hail damage on the car? They say, is it roadworthy? Mm. And that's an underwriting question. And that's probably one of the most... Uh, manual yes or no questions a car insurer will ask you because if you've got hail damage on your car or if it has been written off before, it's uninsurable because the chances of you claiming are 100% it's going to be a claim. And Phil, maybe just talk conceptually about the insurance pool in general, whether it's car, home, contents, life insurance, income insurance. How does the insurance pool work in the world basically. Yeah. So how, I mean, you know, this is how the way I try to explain insurance. Insurance is just a collection of people coming together, putting money into a bank account and saying, if anyone needs that money for a certain thing, they can pull money out of that bank account. And so that's really what like car insurance is. That's what life insurance is, is everyone just pooling money together. And that pool of money can, you know, earn a rate of return and can be invested. Um, But the money that goes in needs to pay for the money that goes out. So it's really a socialist system. I'll pay heaps in premiums and I may never get anything in return. And you may pay one year's worth of premiums and you get a million dollar claim after a year. Yeah. So for example, I'll I'll make something wild up. For every $1,000 that I put into the insurance pool, for example, the insurance company might carve out 10% as profit. They might carve out 20% as operational costs. They might carve out another 10% for marketing. So, what have we got? 40%. Then the 60% goes into the pool. Yeah, exactly. That will actually... So, and it's just so important, Phil, that we need to understand because the most outraged comments we get in the Facebook group are when people have exclusions or declines for personal insurance. And, you know, I've had declines and I'm happy later in the episode to open up one of my policies and tell you exactly what I've been declined for, what I've been excluded for, what I've um, got loadings for. So, it is just about ensuring the sustainability of that insurance pool, isn't it? And, and, and that's exactly right. The sustainability is really important because at the end of the day, it's, it's not just the insurance company making the call. The insurance companies in Australia, they've got another insurance company above them who is also protecting their book and their business and the one paying out the claim. But on top of that, we've got a regulator who is making things very um, strict because the regulator says to the insurance companies, if you're going to give out a policy that is a high-risk policy, you need to hold, hold a whole bunch of money as capital reserves to guarantee that you can pay out that claim in the future. So, a lot of the changes that happened last year and the year before was about the regulator stepping in and saying, hey, this pool of um, insured people is maybe too generous for the amount that you're charging. And so, we've got to kind of restrict some of these things. So, it's not just the one insurance company who's, you know, maybe declining and, and being unfair, but it's also the regulator saying, hey, we need to make sure that this 
that there is money left to pay out these claims in 10, 20, 30 years' time. Yeah, and we have had, uh, everyone, you may not have heard the word over the last couple of years, the word unprecedented. Uh, it's a it's a new word, Phil. No one's heard it in the last couple of years. Um, you know, over, say, the last eight to 10 years, we have seen personal insurance costs increase. Uh, we've seen a lot of insurance costs increase, but back to, say, like the income protection, that imp- that insurance pool has just been hammered because the policies have been too good and the insurers haven't been able to get a return with low interest rates on the pool of money. So, it's just been a wild ride. Exactly. And, and just going back to that analogy, more people are pulling money out of the account than are putting money in. So, the insurer as the kind of the caretaker of that pool of money says we need to raise everyone's premiums because of it. So, just a quick structural lay the land and we will get back to James uh, Robson's question. Yeah, we promise. We'll answer your question, James. Yeah, we might. We're just catching <laughs> up. It's just Phil and I, we're, we're friends. We just catch up. Um, so, in Australia at the moment, there's what, 10 retail insurers? Yep. Life insurers? Yep. So, within those 10, each of those insurers, they've got a insurance pool that they've got to manage. They've got um, a business that, that needs to run and be profitable and be sustainable for the future. And they've got to look after their policyholders, right? So, and that's why it's just important that we have Phil answer these questions uh, because he's, you know, he would write business with all 10, 11 companies in Australia. And, you know, we talk about fully medically underwritten. Each separate company will have their own criteria for what they're comfortable and the risks that they're comfortable taking on. I mean, this is a wild example, but a million years ago when I was an advisor, if I had a commercial airline pilot, we would go to Cominshaw, or if I had a police officer, I would go to MLC because they were the two companies that really were catering for those people and they would price the policies and have policies specific to that industry, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So back to James's question, what does fully medically underwritten actually mean? Yeah, so at the start of the policy, so before an insurance company will accept the application, they will do a, a, a medical assessment. Now, that starts with just a phone call and a disclosure over the phone. So, most of them are yes and no questions. You know, have you you know had any treatment or symptoms for mental health in the last five years? Have you had any back injuries or um, symptoms or treatment over the last five years? So, it's all yes and no over the phone. And then that will trigger additional requirements if they need to, just to make sure they can fully assess you as an individual and your health and your health history. Because once the insurance policy, once it's fully medically written and it's a direct policy between you and the insurer, the insurance company can't change their mind later. You hurt your back five years in the, in the future, well, they can't go back and, and add that exclusion. So, that's what fully medically underwritten means is at the time you're applying, they will do that risk assessment upfront. And the reason why that is so important is because you want to take the time to go through your health history before you take out a policy so you've got absolute certainty when it comes to claim time because every insurance policy, you're buying a claim. Now, conversely, there are policies and, you you know, often seen on daytime TV and all that crap where you might apply for a policy or you do a, a tick and flick with your mortgage broker for some tack on insurance policy that is pseudo under, like they'll say, oh, do you smoke and 
what's your date of birth and they'll get a basic information fill. But the danger is if a claim ever arose, at that point, they go through your health history prior to the policy being taken out with a microscope to see if they would actually pay a claim if there was a pre-existing condition in that policy. That's right. Yeah. So, some contracts and, and just the second part of James's question is how come super funds don't do that? Um, because they have sometimes been built in their contracts that that has exclusions for pre-existing medical conditions. So, they just, you know, lower friction. You know, the daytime TV shows will say, well, they actually advertise no medicals. Um, and that's because in built in the actual contract says if there's a pre-existing condition, we won't pay out on it or we won't pay out for a certain number of years on it. Um, and so, the reason super funds don't do that is because every um, member of the super fund can just get a get a, a group policy. So they can be a part of that group and overarching, there's an, a risk assessment for that group. Um, but if you ever want to increase your cover within super, then they will ask those questions. That's right. So uh, just as a, a housekeeping thing as well, like we are talking about retail insurance policies in this episode which are set up for you by a financial advisor. But today we are just talking about underwriting uh, prior to you getting a policy. And for me personally, I would rather the time taken before I get on risk, before a policy is written. So if I do have the worst medical event or the worst accident, I'm not worrying whether we have to take these months and months to get doctor's reports, to, to see if I get a claim paid, right? Yeah, that's right. And and the thing about like the retail cover and what that actually means because, you know, there's all a bit of jargon. It's all insurance, isn't it? If I'm going through super, going direct, going through an advisor, it's all kind of the same. But the reality is that retail cover versus super, if we just touch on those two things, is the retail cover, you own the contract. Once you sign up for it, the insurance company agrees to your medical history and says, yes, we will or won't pay out on X, Y, and Z. And they cannot amend that contract on you. Um, you know, under contract law in Australia, they can't just go and rewrite it whenever they yeah. want to. But the other, the other types, they can. Yeah. So, it's just we need to understand this stuff because it is such a crucial foundation in all our financial lives. Any other comments before we move on to the next question? No, I, just, I mean, just to reiterate James's question, why don't super funds do it is because they offer low levels of cover and it just reduces the friction um, when yeah. signing up for the super fund because the super fund's aim is to bring in as much funds into the super fund because the actual insurance that the super fund provides is all outsourced. So, that's all lost money for them. They don't actually make it. Yeah, so money. if you've got an Australian super super fund with death, TPD and income insurance in that account, Australian super is not the insurance company. Australian Super go to an insurer that provide a group cover and they will organise a group plan for their members because yep. as a trustee, they have a responsibility to look after their members. And those contracts usually can change every three years and that's why you might get some real wild letters in your mailbox from your default super insurance companies because they might negotiate different rates and different benefits and policy terms every three years. Yeah, exactly. So, I just wanted to say maybe some myths. So, if I want quality, medically underwritten retail life and income insurance, Phil, 
do I always need to get a medical? Do I need a blood test? Do I need to go to my doctor? Yeah, it's a good question. Generally, no. Um, almost well, most of the time, it's actually no. For, for most of the people in the My Millennial Money community, um, it's as once you start getting really high levels of cover, the insurance companies have like what they call mandatory medicals. So if you get over $2 million, well, they need uh, you know to, to have some actual mandatory medicals. But yeah. for the most part, it's a disclosure over the phone any additional information the insurance company want, they will go direct to your GP and get a report, get them to write the report so they can get some additional info. So just getting really practical on that, I'll just use me as an example. I want some income insurance and I want some death cover and some lump sum covers. I fill out the forms. Yep, I want 500K death TBD, 100K trauma. I want income protection with a five grand a month monthly benefit. If my health history is, you know, pretty normal or I've had some issues and the underwriters can see that, oh, he had eczema and that's not an issue and, you know, he broke his femur, what's the femur, whatever, five Set years the ago. Leg or the arm. Yeah, whatever. One of them. Uh, and that's healed. Yeah, we're happy to take on that risk with no mandatory medical uh, tests or blood tests. So ordinarily, if I was in good health with those levels of cover, it's a personal statement of health, which is the questionnaire that you know a lot of your clients feel will do over the phone with the insurance companies. Yep. And that's all well and good. Now, if, for example, I said, oh, actually, I've had some blood, high blood pressure or I've been on this ongoing medication, it's stable. The practical thing is the underwriter will say, hey, I need you to sign this authority. We will write to your GP to get your GP to fill out a report. And what happens is the insurance company will pay your GP or medical specialist to complete a report based on uh, the questions that the insurance company ask your GP, or they may ask for some other uh, copies of maybe some imaging or something like that. So that's how it works practically. And sometimes the reason it does take a long time to get cover put in place, like could be three months, right? Because a lot of the time it's sitting at a doctor's surgery waiting for the GPs because they're busy, right? Um, to do the paperwork. And that's why, yeah, this morning when when, a, when someone asked me how long can the process be, I'm like, well, look, anywhere between a month and, you know, six months, depending on your medical history, depending on if we need more information, because like the difference with home and contents, insurers can really easily assess based on a whole bunch of data points and, and they, their computer can do that. But we're all each individual special snowflakes and special butterflies with our own kind of niggles and our own kind of, you know, drivers um, and the insurance company needs to assess that. And so that's why it does take time and, and can be quite you know painful to set up, to be honest. Likewise. And if I disclose that, oh, three years ago, I had uh, a blood test, my blood sugar was low um, or some other thing that may have happened, the insurance company might say, hey, Glenn, we going, we're going to pay for a nurse to come to your home or workplace at our cost at a reasonable you know, time and location or whatnot. And we just want some blood tests. And that happened to me. I, I had a nurse come to my house, do a blood test, and I could elect for, for them to send a copy of those blood tests to my GP. Uh, so, my point is, you want to go through this process when the insurance money isn't needed, as opposed to getting a policy from the TV or 
some cover through a super fund that's default. And then when there is an accident or there is a health event, I don't want to be held up for an insurance company to double check your medical history that could take two months or three months, right? That's right. And for, you know, 90 or 80% of our clients, most people aren't getting a nurse to their house. Most people aren't getting this. It's just a phone call over the phone and then just a waiting game for the GP yep. to, to respond to the insurers. Another thing, and we will uh, talk about it. There was a question in there about BMI and we will get to that. But for example, actually, we'll talk about it now. So BMI... We know it's not the gold standard of health, but it is a good guide for insurers to quantify data. That's it. And and we, we're going to talk a lot of the questions about exclusions and all of this. And at the end of the day, it's all about an assessment of risk the insurance company want to take on. The amount of times I've been lectured about how useless BMI is, and I, I don't disagree whatsoever, but this is a metric the insurance companies collectively all use. And so, um, unless we're willing to set up a new insurance company and have our own new um, assessment on BMI and, and how you know useless it is, um, at the end of the day, that's kind of the rules of the game is insurers assess health on BMI. And the reason they do is because it's not like something like if I break my leg yesterday, you know, they can kind of exclude my leg. And they can, they can kind of pencil my, you know, around my leg and say, we're not going to pay out on that. Something like BMI, there are like multiple kind of effects on, you know, height and weight and how that does impact the health. And so that's why they may charge you more. So they put a loading on for BMI. And it's also not just that on its own. If you've got uh, high blood pressure, if you've got, you know, PCOS, um, like other factors will kind of combine together to, to have its own individual outcome based on your personal you know, health history. Now, I will say on that, you talked about loadings. So, there are instances, and we'll go to Christina's question here. Yeah, I would love to know why I got a mental health exclusion and 100% loading because of my mental illness a decade ago. Exclusion and loading? Seriously? What a rot. So, I've been, I've like, I've got the exact same situation as the questioner here. It's actually, I can't take it personally that I've got a mental health exclusion or a loading on my trauma policy because I've had uh, polyps removed as part of routine colonoscopies. I'm just a bag of chemicals that needs to go into the insurance data machine, right? Like it's, it's not the insurance company being, I don't know, like... Um, I mean, I mean, it is personal. It is people. It is, but it I is mean, personal it's just, because an insurance company is making a personal judgment about your health history, and you know your health history better than the insurance company does. However, one thing I will always communicate. Well, I mean, there's a few things here. Mm. If something happened ten years ago, underwriting isn't a set of rule books that never changes. So I would it would be worthwhile touching base with an advisor and just reassessing if that may be the, the outcome then, but it may not be the outcome today. And given you may be 10 years away from whatever the, the cause and the symptoms of it was, that may have a different outcome as well because time can be favorable when it comes to underwriting. So the goalposts are always changing. So yes, that was a rule 10 years ago and we've had the exact same client situation. Like it's it's not you know, outside of the realm of possibilities, but there are probably other factors involved than just simply mental health. But I just want to add, the insurance companies, as far as they see it, they get to underwrite once on a policy, right? Now, if I had a BMI that was a little bit higher 
and they said, yeah, w- yeah, Glenn, we'll give you, um, we'll give you the cover, but you have to pay a little bit more because again, they want you to pay a little bit more into the pool because statistically a higher BMI than whatever's considered normal could lead to heart disease, could lead to diabetes, could lead to a whole heap of other stuff. So they get to underwrite once. So it's like high risk BMI, pay a little bit more. Likewise, if I'm a bricklayer or a, you know, I don't know, a hardcore manual operation, high risk of getting hurt at work, pay more to subsidize the risk pool. But then, you know, I've worked really hard over the last five years and I've had two solid years of my BMI, my height and weight uh, being maintained, I can go back to the insurance company and I can apply to have that loading reviewed and removed. Yeah, exactly. And and again, that's why I would I would go back to Christina and say, that happened 10 years ago, whether you took out the cover or not. If Let's say you did. Well, you can you can ask the insurance company or ask your advisor to help with it um, to review those loadings, um, yep. because again, I don't I don't know the situation at all, and it's hard to make you know an actual comment. But given if you took it out ten years ago, the outcome may be different today, and getting the insurance company to review that is definitely worthwhile. Phil, the word that I was thinking of before was, and look, I say this knowing that it's happened to me, so I'm talking about me here. I've got a mental health exclusion on my policy. I've got a right ankle exclusion. I've got a loading for my trauma cover because I've there's a high chance of me having uh, bowel cancer, right? So I've got a loading and I pay more. That can feel, and to be honest, I can't get any more. If I apply for cover tomorrow, I'm a decline because there's just too many things going on with all my surgeries, right? And I've got sleep apnea. Um, if I applied tomorrow and got a decline on cover because of my current personal health, that does feel like the insurance company are discriminating against me. It does. And I want to say it might feel that way when you get a, a letter or a call from your advisor to say, hey, the insurance company won't offer terms. It does feel like discrimination, but it's not. They're protecting the insurance pool. Likewise, I can't be pissed off that the ins- the car insurer won't insure my car that's got hail damage. It's just a fact of life. Honestly, like, and it does sound like, you know, and you'll probably be enraged at me, like, how dare you say that? I'm sorry, but insurance- Well, well it is discrimination, but they're allowed to discriminate. And, and they're allowed to discriminate based on statistics. That's really, yeah. there is an exemption for discrimination for insurance companies because they're yeah. taking on the risk and they're protecting the pool. And so that's kind of the nature of insurance is if you're, you know, under, if you're a 21 year old male and you get car insurance, you're going to be charged a high premium because the statistical likelihood of you crashing is higher. Now, you may be a very conservative driver, but you're still a male, you're still 21, and you're still in that pool of higher risk. And no one's forcing you to take out the car insurance. Mm. Like, so I, I don't know, this is a landmine and, you know, we are going to talk about some other mental health stuff. And I do say all this stuff, understanding everyone has complex health crap going on. And if you don't, you might one day. And if you don't, you'll know someone who's going through health crap. And, and the other thing I would say as well to Christina's point about getting in it, loading and exclusion is 
again, I wasn't there 10 years ago when this happened, but was that an outcome from one insurer? Or was that like, did you go through the super fund and the super funds insurer said that at that point in time? Did you, did you, you know, survey the market and, and get every insurer to respond to your medical history? So that's why like what we do in our business, we do all that work up front before we pick an insurer because we know that has a massive impact on wh- which insurer we would like to recommend to our clients because of these health, health things. And we'd like to have that discussion up front and say, hey, just be aware that these are the expected terms of an application, let's not waste our time if you're really not keen on going ahead with these kind of potential terms. Um, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth that much like a mortgage broker, if I had uh, three casual jobs, which worked out to be a full-time hours and a full-time income, and I walked into one bank at a shopping center and they said, hey, you can't get a mortgage based on your situation. If I go to a mortgage broker, they can look and go, oh, we've got the exact lender who will absolutely hook you up. Yeah, Exactly. And, and the same same with these things. Not, all, not every insurer is the same. Not everyone assesses the same. Um, so it's just a matter of kind of, yeah, I mean, of course I'm going to say this, but engage an expert who can work with multiples. Your super fund only has one insurance company that they contract to. And Australian super, they use TAO. And that's whatever TAO says goes when you apply through Australian super. But you can set up policies with any insurer across Australia and you can still get Australian super to pay that premium. Now... Phil, we're just going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and continue the questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, we're back. Gemma Geston said, if you have a pre-existing chronic health condition or disability, can you still get TPD insurance for it in the event that it becomes so severe that you cannot work? So just broadly speaking, pre-existing condition. Well, I would say to Gemma actually, given what we've talked about, would NRMA insure your car if it had hail damage? We're just giving space for Gemma to answer. <laughs> Come on, Gemma. Let's see. Come on. Come on, we can't hear you. But that's a hard no, isn't it, Phil? With, uh, so, with, with the pre-existing chronic health condition, most, most of the time you're either going to get an exclusion, you, you may get charged more for it, or they may not even offer you cover for, for anything. Um, but yeah, if, if it is a pre-existing health condition, 
um, and it and it leads, kind of leads into long term being a significant disability. The likelihood of you being able to get cover for that is is almost impossible. Now, again, I don't know this situation. I I don't understand what's going on, but generally speaking, um, the insurance company are going to look at that and look at your individual health, and they'll say you know what, you're going to claim on this in the future. So we're, we're not willing to cover that because it's just a guaranteed money going out of that bank account. And and the amount that we need to charge you is 25 grand a year just to cover that money going out and doesn't make it sustainable for anyone. There was an anonymous question that went up in the Facebook group just 10 minutes before we press go on the recording. And I'm just going to read it to you because it was actually good for this episode. Has anyone encountered an outright refusal for underwritten income protection or other insurances after disclosing historical drug use and or mental health diagnosis? So an outright refusal is a decline. Any advice where to go from here? For context, I've gone through a Glenn James recommended insurance broker, but they've come back and told me that they can't find me cover. Time to boost that emergency fund, I guess. And that's basically, I mean... What are the options, Phil? Or do you want to talk about drugs? Yeah, we could talk, uh, you know, high level. Now, look, as advisors, I couldn't care less if you take drugs. I couldn't care less if you're unhealthy. I, we don't really care. We're very pragmatic. This is what the insurers tells us and this is what the outcome is is going to be. So, like, any judgment aside about any drug use, you know, let's just put that on the table that, you know, you do you, boo. Um mm. But from an insurer's point of view, they assess risk. Now, risk that you're going to claim because of a drug overdose or anything like that, that's not the risk that they're really worried about. They're worried about the risk of um, a, a behavioral risk of going, if you are taking illegal drugs, and so like things like cannabis generally are, are pretty fine. We can get cover if, there's, if it's just cannabis. But if it's, if it's like MDMA, cocaine, things like that, like that is... You know, I don't know the law too well. I'm not a you know a lawyer, but that like that's a lifestyle risk that you as an individual are taking on. And so, from an insurer's point of view, how they kind of judge that risk is very difficult for them to put into a computer and spit out a kind of a risk assessment on. And we actually had another question in in these other questions about like you know surely most people in the my millennial money community uh, uh, there is rec- a lot of recreational drug use and so how is anyone getting cover? And again, it's it's just a difficult thing for insurance companies to assess risk. And as a market, as an insurance market in Australia, that's a you know a pretty clear cut question that they ask. And it's generally, if there's any recreational drug use within the last three years unless we can really prove that your whole lifestyle's changed and there's been some, you know, have a conversation with the underwriter about any external factors as to why that shouldn't be a, a risk factor anymore, it's generally a pretty hard decline. So Uncle Glennie coming in with the street talk, they're more worried about you having a bit of gowie and jumping off a bridge and being very injured. Uh, I mean, like I'm not an underwriter. But my understanding, yeah, my understanding is it's actually less about the risk of you injuring yourself while you're on drugs or anything like that, but just more of a how do we assess someone with that lifestyle? They just can't quantify it. Yeah, that's yeah. the difficulty. Like mm. it's it's just a matter of going, oh, how do we assess that risk if someone's you know taking recreational drugs? Um, it's difficult. Have you to ever assess. taken recreational drugs, Phil? Me? No, I'm, I'm the most boring person you'll ever meet. I haven't. I haven't ever had a cigarette. 
I haven't. I've never been drunk. I don't even drink. Yeah, well, I'm like, and you're still uninsurable. So yeah, still all those people who are yeah. getting declined for recreational drug use. Or Glennie here has barely done anything, and he's still getting um, declined. But these days, like, if you had a a joint or whatever, that would just put you down as smokers' rates, wouldn't they? Yeah, and and that's why, like, you know, marijuana, cannabis, all that stuff can sometimes be okay now. It, there are other factors involved. So like once or twice MDMA, cocaine in the last five years can be okay as well. Like we've got plenty of clients who have we've had that. Like if someone's dabbled, had a go and then never done it again, that's okay. But it's more that kind of the regular once every quarter, you know. I, I'm going to tell you a real story here and this is a cautionary tale. Anything in life, you're going to lie, make sure you can get away with it. So, sure, there might be someone who, I don't know, gets a bit wild. And again, like you, I don't care what anyone does. But if you're going for an insurance application and you tell them, hey, yeah, I don't um, swallow a pill before I go to Future Music Festival or South by Southwest. I don't know. I'm sounding really old now. <laughs> What's a current cool festival? I don't know. One of my team members is going to something. It's, um, well, I don't even know. I'm so old. It's yeah, old. I'm, I'm a dinosaur now. And then you say, no, I'm not doing that. And then because you, um, you're on medication for, I don't know, something that was unrelated to anything and they said, look, we're just going to get a doctor's report to sign off and, you know, you told your doctor once that you like popping the odd pill. Um, there might be a question, has the client ever disclosed to you drug use or whatever? The insurance company finds out, decline. So if you told your doctor crap, you can't lie about it because the truth always is buoyant. Now, and so what happens if someone says to Uncle Philly, hey, Phil, yeah, I, you know, I love, you know, a nose beer every now and again. Is that going to impact me? My doctor doesn't know that I have nose beers. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the issue is as, as professional advisors, when we know something that will have an impact, we can't, we can't work with you and, and help you intentionally lie to the insurance company. So, um, it's a non-starter. Yeah. And that's for why for us, it, it is a difficult situation because we have to, we have to go back to, to people who want cover and we understand their situation. We know that, you know, recreational drug use, you know, I would love that not to have a massive impact on your insurance application, but we know what the outcome will be. And if, if you lie to the insurance company, but tell us the truth, then we're in a really difficult, we've got a professional obligation to make sure that we're not intentionally helping you lie. And so we will kind of step in and say, hey, no, we, we can't act on your behalf and we can't help you with this because we know something that is true that, that you've that you've haven't disclosed to the insurer. Because at the end of the day, if a claim happened two years time and, and it came out and you got declined, like that's that's not just my, you know, personal feeling that I, I would feel horrible if that happened with a client, but it's also my my um, professional indemnity insurance. Um, yeah. So Phil, I, I will say this, like we say that there's no um, retrospective underwriting at claim time because there really isn't unless there's exceptional weird circumstances that you took out the policy, two weeks later, uh, you were to die from a, I'll just be very extreme here, from a drug overdose. 
And on the death certificate, you've sent the death certificate into the insurance company to get the money. And the cause of death was um, accidental drug overdose. You know, two weeks after the claim, uh, the policy has been put in force, that's a red flag. And the insurance company will reserve the right to go back and just double check that it wasn't fraudulent or there wasn't anything not disclosed. That's right. And, and you know, let's let's put drug use aside because that that outcome is very low. The people who are taking recreational drug use, the likelihood of them overdosing on it is, is very low. But, you know, just on that disclosure and that um, application stage, they'll still want medical evidence about it. So we, I had a conversation with a client um, last week who we set up their policy without a mental health exclusion. Several months later, they, um, they were getting treatment and, and having symptoms for mental health and I just said to that client and and now we're claiming on something that's kind of similar kind of off and I said to that client I would just just double check and just just understand what the doctor's notes were at the time of which you got that mental health treatment because if the doctor's notes were for the last 12 months been having symptoms of mental health then that could be an issue at claim time because the insurer may say well actually you didn't disclose that you had these symptoms and you're getting this you know you're having these feelings. And so that can be a concern is making sure so you are I, telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Now I, you know, I've said on this podcast for years that I was diagnosed and found out that I actually had anxiety and actually had depression in my late twenties. Now I got my first income protection policy before I was diagnosed, before I knew. So yeah, categorically when I took out my policy, I had depression and anxiety, but I didn't know about it. So I didn't disclose about it. I did, I'd never been to a doctor and talked about it, hadn't been to psychologists. So that was all good. So now technically there's like, oh, I think 40% of my income protection benefit doesn't have a mental health exclusion. Mm. But because I've increased it in the future and then had uh, depression and anxiety and take medication for that, go to the counseling, you know, when I need to or whatnot, my increased cover has the exclusion. Phil, there's a question here from Beth Good. Glenn James, can you please ask why they block you if you've ever been diagnosed with a personality disorder? I was misdiagnosed at 17 and last year I found out I'm autistic and a couple of months ago I tried to get cover but was refused based on the fact I'd been diagnosed with a personality disorder in the past. Excluding people based on psychiatric conditions feels like a punch in the gut, especially when it stops them making healthy decisions for themselves because they don't have appropriate insurance. So, Phil, in your experience with conditions, uh, autism, ADHD, what's the lay of the land with that? Yeah, so... um yeah, this is, this is a really good question and, and this is my first point is just because one insurer said that's the way that they deal with it, it doesn't mean that's the, the market view. Um, so always, um, you know, the insurance company, they're the ones taking the risk. So they'll decline you if they want to, but maybe not everyone will do it. So just to touch on this point, it was, you know, personality disorder. No, I'm not going to touch too much on that, but found out that um, diagnosed with autism. Now, I called up an insurance company, an underwriter this morning um, about how they classify autism and, and they're really, it's, it really is so personal. That's why underwriting, it's not a, like a science. It's not something you just put in an Excel spreadsheet. It's really understanding you as an individual and a good advisor will kind of help understand that and, and work through that. 
but how they how they do it is if you're if you've got autism high functioning minimal impairment living independently um and no behavioral issues or, or mental health then there may not be an issue with that at all now, high functioning autism is is totally fine and there's no issues whatsoever now if there are some kind of mental health conditions and and symptoms and treatment in there can have a different outcome um but if if it's beyond that and there's like mild or, or moderate or severe um, autism, it can be much more difficult getting cover. So we're, we're probably well, we're looking more likely to get declined for income protection and um, TPD and then maybe still getting some life insurance and trauma insurance. Um, but again, it's kind of, I come back to it, it's just because one insurer said it doesn't mean all insurers are going to say it. And, and there's another question which I'll touch on which talk to that point exactly but yeah it's it's really difficult without getting a, f- a full understanding but yeah there there are different requirements for different insurers phil what if you're medically declined are there any other options yeah so um the the, the drug use question just touch back on the drug use there's very little options <laughs> that's why i said uh, medically declined yeah, yeah. Wink, <laughs> but, wink. but uh <laughs> leading be, the witness your honor <laughs> to be medically declined there is there is some in, a few insurers who will offer cover based on accidents only so if you have an accident and you need the money because of an accident, well, we can get that cover. And the reason why we can potentially get that cover is because they're not making a medical assessment on you. Um, they're, they're making a judgment call on how likely are you based on your occupation, based on your, your age, based on your sex to have an accident and claim on it. And so we can yeah, look at getting accident-only cover. And I actually had a client um, once who had an accident-only income protection policy uh, he was medically declined and we took out a, an accident-only income protection policy. He was a builder or carpenter. He fell off a ladder at work, broke his leg, and he couldn't work for three or four months and he was on claim. It was perfect. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. And, and like, you know, young males, I think 40% of all claims for young males for income protection is accidents-related. So, you it still covers it. At, uh, you only have to look at my uh, Instagram real feed and you'll see why. I just want to touch on recreational activities. What's the deal? Um, my name's Glenn. I'm addicted to skydiving. Um, can I get insurance? Yeah, and again, it's all it's all personalised. So generally, yes, they they may put a, a skydiving exclusion on on the policy. So if you, if you, your shoot doesn't work and you and you go splat, um, then you're not going to get paid out for that. Uh, now, if you stop doing that. Um, or if you don't do it at the time you apply, but then you start doing it, well, you're covered for it. And if you stop doing it, we can go back to the insurance company and say, hey, Glenn, Glenn EJ over here, he's no longer skydiving. Can we remove that exclusion? And, that, and they'll um, do that. One, and one of the things with recreational uh, activities is like diving. So that's where, you know, if you do scuba diving and you like going in shipwrecks, you're getting Phil, an exclusion. Yes, Glennie. I was just about to talk about scuba diving. Oh, amazing. Mind melding. Yeah. We are in sync, my friend. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're, if you've got your standard open water diving thing and you're like, yeah, I dive, I, we don't really go more than 18, 20 meters, we might do it once a month. Sure, they don't care. But if the risk increases and you go into those shipwrecks past, I'm making numbers up, past 20 or 30 meters, that's when they're like, look, we have to exclude scuba diving. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you just got the snorkel on and you're snorkeling, who cares? There's no there's yep. you know, the risk of a coral hurting your hand. Okay, well we'll take that risk. 
And this is why it's such a specialty because within the health concerns that we may or may not have, there are insurers that will offer terms. Within some of the recreational activities that we do, there will be insurers like some insurers including might, drug use, including drug use, including drug like use, drug once use. off cocaine. There are a lot of insurers that will go. We don't even want to touch it, but there are some who are saying, "Look, once off, okay, we're happy to take on on that risk." Let's talk about pre-existing mental health issues, and there's a couple of anonymous ones here. And I'll just pa- paraphrase a um, couple of examples. I'm happily married. Uh, we had a bit of a fight. There was a bit of a rift in the relationship and we both went to marriage counselling for six weeks with a psychologist. Surely that's not a mental health exclusion. Well, it depends. Depends on the insurer's assessment, like it can be. Um, Even if you're just doing it for preventative marriage maintenance. And, and this is where the underwriters want to understand this. And so, call. yeah, they will make a judgment call. And as advisors, we can we can argue on your behalf, and we do all the time argue. But but also, we kind of go, you know, it depends on the situation. So we we've had clients who, you know, husband passed away twelve months ago, went to counselling. Of course, they're going to go to counselling. It's a no brainer. And yes, it is rough that an insurance company puts a mental health exclusion on, but. But now she's, you know, um, with another partner, you know, building a life for herself and, um, and we could get that removed in the future if there's no ongoing counselling and, and um, no ongoing kind of issue there. And that's kind of the, the concern with the insurers is if you, um, if you go into marriage counselling and at the time you apply for cover and then the marriage breaks up and then it's really significant kind of divorce, you know, ongoing issues there can lead to a kind of a more sustained mental health kind of concern. Well, the insurers are paying for that. Um, and so that's why they are very risk adverse when it comes to mental health because they don't know, is it going to deteriorate? Is it going to improve? Like what's the outlook? Because they're covering once and, and, and covering for the rest of the policy. I mean, we can put a rover on Mars as the human race, but we can't quantify between the two ears, basically. And so, the question, the question that was asked was actually about like, you know, employee- Do you want to read that paragraph, Phil? Yeah. So, I've been told that uh, anytime an employee accesses their EAP, Employee Assistance Program, it rules them out from commencing new income protection policies for the next three years on mental health grounds. So, I'll just pause there. Yeah. So, it, it doesn't stop them from getting cover- it may have cover with a mental health exclusion. So, um, unless there's multiple kind of concerns, you're not going to get declined just because of that. And so, I'll keep reading the question. Even if they are discussing anything to do with mental illnesses with the EAP provider, e.g. they might have a colleague with difficult behaviour and just have a single session with the EAP to ask questions about strategies and managing interactions and relationships with that um, colleague. Is this true? And so... The answer is yes or no, and it depends. So, again, from an insurer's point of view, if they kind of look into that and they go, are you having kind of issues, relationship issues with colleagues? Well, you're going to have to work there. Um, There's no guarantee that that colleague's going to leave or or it's going to be improved. And so, they always look at it as a risk assessment. What's the risk of that deteriorating? Because we're paying you if you can't work. Now, 
majority, well, a significant amount of claims on income protection is mental health related. And that can be stress, can be anxiety. And, and all of these, you know, the people who you work with can be the cause of that stress and anxiety. So that kind of one session just to kind of manage behavioral issues with a colleague, what can have an impact on your own personal mental health? And, and we all kind of know this, like we all understand how mental health is so involved in what we do and we need to make sure we're protecting our mental health and looking after it. But the, the concern from the insurer's point of view is if it does deteriorate, then we're protecting our mental health by getting an insurance company to pay us money because we're protecting it. So that's why they are super conservative. So if it is simply a session, hey, I want to be a better manager and, um, you know, I don't have any issues, but I just want assistance in, you know, how to, from a psychological point of view, how do I manage better? Well, maybe there's no mental health exclusion. And that's why more information is always, always, always better when it comes to assessing an insurance application. And I think you can always um, ask for more information on the underwriting call. And, you know, I had a client once and... We got a mental health exclusion and he was a, um, uh, you know, big burly bloke, big company he was running and, you know, great guy and there was a mental health exclusion. Because big burly blokes don't have mental health conditions? Is well, that what we're saying? No, no. <laughs> back off, mate. I'm saying that <laughs> we all have a facade and the facade, like, is never usually what's going on. And, you know, if you're a big burly bloke, it's okay to be vulnerable and have mental health stuff. And he got a, an exclusion and there was this thing with, I think he didn't want to tell me the whole scenario, but like the the doctor's report basically said, and the underwriter was kind and polite and they don't disclose a lot of the information back to the advisor, but he just said, look, because I pushed, I said, look, we need to know like what's actually, and he goes, look, loosely paraphrasing, there was multiple times where the work stress was getting to him and the doctor said that he was, you know, in his office crying about it and it just was too heavy. And, you know, there does, there is stuff that comes out in doctor's reports that we might not tell the insurance company. We might not tell the advisor. And that's right. And, and that's, and it can be on the, the positive as well. I was talking to the underwriter today about this, this um, autism um, situation and the underwriter was telling me about a, a case where a client had high-functioning autism with a mental health condition and normally that may lead to kind of issues with the decline. Um, but they read through the report and the, the doctor said, well, this mental health condition has got nothing to do with autism. And so what happened, the underwriter was comfortable offering terms just with a mental health exclusion and it didn't lead to a decline because the, men, uh, the doctor's report was really positive to saying these are two separate things. And mm -hmm. if the doctor said, well, this is kind of all wrapped together and, and you know, there's maybe on, ongoing concerns, well, the underwriter has to, has to take that information into account and, and that's why you know, those doctor's reports are really important and, and that's why we try and follow up with the underwriter to understand as much as we can um, to relay what, that, what the thought process was from the underwriter. Yeah, it's just about being honest, transparent and asking questions and what I was getting at, Phil, if you, know, if you want to reach out, sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help and you know, get some insurance for your family, ask when I refer you to, you know, likely it will be Sky Wealth, Phil and his team or some other advisors, depending on what you need, 
totally ask them about what's the underwriting process like? How does it work? And just, you can say, look, I I've, I've, may have some questions about privacy. How is it dealt with? Like, it's all good, but it's just so important that we understand that it is a, a heavy process for some people, sometimes. That's right. And, and, and Glenn, I can tell your energy is low and I've got a question I really want to address and, and it yeah. goes to the kind of this initial process that we do in our, as, a, as a team. So, what we do is we ask a million questions up front about your health history because it does dictate which insurance company we, we will recommend for you based on your personal, you know, you're an individual snowflake and you're special and so we want to place the insurance based on that and not just based on the price. Yeah, price is important. We don't want to be paying for the most expensive cover. But going to this question that we had was about family history of breast cancer. So background, my mum had breast cancer in her 40s, has a genetic testing which results showed her cancer was not caused by any known genetic mutation and therefore is not hereditary. So why am I getting an exclusion for breast cancer? And I'll touch on that by kind of reiterating the whole point of the, well, one of the big points I want to make is just because one insurer will do and will have that outcome doesn't mean everyone does. So, breast family history of breast cancer is really, really um, kind of a good one, a good example of this. So, there are like really two insurers who will offer this client cover without a breast cancer exclusion. Um, it doesn't matter about you know genetic testing or anything. But um, if they had a genetic test and they did have the BRCA gene, that's a showstopper with those insurers? Uh, that's a little bit grey. So, you know, technically insurers can't use genetic testing um, as, as, sure. a, as a factor. It's, it's all about the family history. Um, right. and, and that was changed in like 2019. Um, sure. It, it, got, came, it came out that they, they can't use genetic testing against your own personal um, situation, but they can use family history. So, this client is a great example of why you should use a financial advisor or Sky mainly. Is um, <laughs> <laughs> really Whatever. because there well, are- Phil, you are a trusted member oh, that's of right. the, the advice panel. No, but this is the value of an, of an advisor who really works heavily in insurance spaces. We know that there are three insurers who would potentially offer you cover. One will put a loading on it and the other two will just say, yep, we're, we're comfortable. Unless there was multiple family members with breast cancer, but most other insurers will put an exclusion on and will um, or put a loading on the policy for family history of breast cancer. So, Phil, talk to me because, again, I'm an ancient fossil. When I was doing this crap, if there was family history below certain ages of ovarian cancer, sometimes there would be an exclusion uh, for breast and ovarian cancer because there was a link statistically. That's right, yeah. And and again, this is where like this BRCA gene is, um, is really interesting kind of conversation about, you know, well, it's not, you know, a genetic mutation. I mean, we've had clients who have, their parents have had a melanoma and therefore they've gotten exclusions because of it. And we've pushed the back- The parent said, had a melanoma yes, and they got an exclusion. Yes. And we oh, pushed back and like, what break. is going on? And, yeah. and that insurer's decision-making tree and, and they've got chief medical officers doing a whole bunch of stuff and, and making assessments. Um, and their philosophy was, well, from a lifestyle point of view, um, you know, we, we, we are very much a reflection of our parents. And so, if the parent had melanoma because of a lifestyle, then the kids are higher likelihood of doing it. 
And I went pushed back and was like, that's ridiculous. Let's look at somewhere, like, let's look at moving it. But again, it's like just because one insurer says it doesn't mean everyone's going to do it. And that's why we try and do a lot of that heavy lifting up front so we can kind of give clients an expectation and we can just, instead of going and getting a decline or getting an exclusion for breast cancer, we know, okay, we're recommending X, Y, and Z insurer because of this outcome. Um, or, hey, your, your mum was under 40, really sorry, you're going to have that exclusion because of it. And as time goes on, medical, uh, the medical world changes and what an insurance company may have excluded or declined or loaded, I don't know, 10 years ago. The, the goalposts are they, always, always They changing. might accept today. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, that's, that's important to know. So, if you do have a policy and you've had a loading or an exclusion and it's been in place for 10 years and it was for high blood pressure, but you're actually all healthy now because it was a lifestyle change, go back to your advisor and say, hey, can I get this reviewed? Yeah. And uh, even the age in which you take up, out the policy has an impact yeah. on, on the assessment. Like if you're older, sometimes it'll be a better assessment because, well, they're not, you're not going to be on claim for longer. Like there's all these factors that come into underwriting assessments. Or, or if you're still one of the three people who smoke, not many people smoke anymore, um, you know, you may have given up smoking two years ago. Go back to your advisor and get them to review the the smoking loading that you've got on the policy. What about vaping, Phil? Do they even ask that? Yeah, so va- vaping's the same outcome as smoking. So smoking and, um, and vaping, um, you get charged a loading on the policy. So you get charged a higher premium for that. Smoke rates. Risk. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Wild. Uh, Phil, we've kind of gone through the two pages of things. I wanted to just touch on one thing and, you know, there's a trigger warning at the start of the episode, but I'll just do another trigger warning here um, around taking your own life. Now, every insurance application asks if you have attempted to take your own life. If the answer is yes... That's basically a non-starter in insurance land for any cover. It depends on the length of time since. So, right. yeah. So, even even like ideation, so suicidal thoughts in the last 12 months can be an outright decline of cover. Um, and so, yeah, if there has been hospitalization or anything like that, so we ask those questions up front and, and, you know, all these are very personal questions. We understand that, but we ask them because we know it can have an impact on the cover. So suicidal attempts, suicidal ideations can have an impact unless we're quite a number of years away from, from that and, and we can show that there is, um, you know, a change in life situation. So that's why you can sometimes get a mental health exclusion and a, and a loading on it. So, yeah, please, if you are going through any type of stress, pressure, or you need any support, uh, Lifeline is there, 13 11 14. Call them. It's 24-hour crisis hotline. Please reach out to Lifeline. But, Phil, would you say as a – if I could make a broad statement, and I don't like making broad statements, suicide attempts uh, are – cancer diagnosis, major mental health event, surely it's a 10-year symptom issue-free window before insurance land. 
Like, because a lot of some cancers are like testicular cancer. They're not touching you for ten years. Yeah, and and you know, I just want to set some realistic expectations. Yeah, that yeah. The, cover the isn't world a is, non-starter. The world is, gray. The world is very yeah. grey, and so the only thing I would say for income protection and disability. They're the more difficult ones to get and probably that's a, a reasonable kind of time frame. Yep. For life insurance, that's the easiest but they might just charge you additional premiums. So, it's not like a broad brush, you won't get anything. Mm. Um, it's, but yes, suicidal ideation um, and attempts, hospitalizations, we're probably talking five years away right. um, unless there's any ongoing, you know, still ongoing mental health conditions and treatment. Um, it, then it can be maybe a bit longer than that. Um, mm. But yeah, cancers, again, it depends. Like there's some things where it's just like um, thyroid cancer and that was dealt with, then we can get cover in a more reasonable time frame than that. But if it was a more like, you know, bowel cancer, then we're, then we're struggling to get cancer within that 10-year time frame. That's struggling very cover. Rush. You said cancer, struggling to get cover in that 10-year time frame. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a complex area. Uh, and the reason why we kind of say get cover set up while you're young because you've got a better chance of being healthy uh, while you're young. Like, it's just wild. But I will say, like, talk to us, Phil, in finishing. Uh, if I've got an exclusion uh, for my right ankle, which I do on my TPD, and, and, and this is what I do, right? So, I've got a right ankle exclusion on my TPD. I can't think of a scenario under the sun where if I had my right ankle chopped off that I would be totally and permanently disabled. Like, so for me, sure, throw the exclusion on, like whatever. It's actually a non-starter, but it's just insurance land. They've got to do that stuff, right? But on my income protection, I've got a right ankle exclusion. So if I run down my driveway today, crack my ankle and I can't walk or work for six months, sure, that's an exclusion. But does that mean I can never claim on it? Like, are there scenarios where I can still? Yeah, so, th so the wording of the contract, and, and I mentioned this quickly before just about the, um, the wording of the migraine um, issue, was that at the point of claim, no benefit is payable under the policy for any claim resulting directly or indirectly from that ankle. So, if a if you injure yourself playing football and it was an accident, um, but the recovery was delayed because of that pre-existing condition, then they won't claim, they won't pay out a claim on that because, you know, it's a pre-existing condition, there was an exclusion and it's made worse because of it. And maybe, and there's argument to say the ankle's weaker, so therefore it, it's related. If you're in a car accident, you, you break your leg and, and including your ankle um, and, you, and you can't walk because of it, well, the, a doctor can easily say that, well, that had nothing to do with the claim. You, the car accident wasn't a result of the, the sore ankle and it's not made worse because of it because the way the car crash happened, it completely crushed your leg. So, it's not made worse because of, it's not the cause of it. So, they can still pay out a claim if you can't walk on that ankle um, because of that car accident. Yeah, cool. Good, good hustle. I've done. I'm done. I've checked out. But yeah. hey, everyone. <laughs> 
I, sorry, I just opened my email, start reading. I'm like, I'm not good at meetings and I just check out. But uh, Phil, I hope that was helpful, everyone. Like we've talked for almost an hour and a half um, just around the complexities of underwriting and I would encourage anyone, um, if you've got a job, you need to protect your income and I need you to consider income insurance. Like everything we do in our financial house comes down to making sure the money never stops. And if we can't work due to accident or illness, we absolutely need to make sure the claim will be paid. Don't be freaked out when you hear stories on a current affair with the claim not getting paid. Insurers pay bucket loads of claims. Trust me. It's just... Yeah, Tao's paid over a billion dollars of claims every yeah, single like year. Yeah, like the amount of claims that get paid, it's just so ridiculous and wild. And... You know, if I had a policy that I could claim when I broke my uh, toenail, well, that's ridiculous. It just means the premium would be 200 grand a year because you, we can't quantify everything. So that's why with insurance policies, they've got to draw a circle around things that can be quantified and covered. Otherwise, you know, the policy would be like, we'll cover you for unlimited things. So it all goes back to understanding how the insurance pool works how underwriting the process works. Be in contact with your financial advisor regularly. If you have a mental health condition, give as much detail as possible. It's okay. Phil and his team, they are understanding and they get it. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's just wild. And it does feel embarrassing sometimes, but go at your own speed it's all good. Yeah, and I, I would just recommend going through a financial advisor, whether it's us or anyone else, just make sure you're having a really robust discussion or, or the advisor's collecting a lot of information about your health history because a lot of our recommendations to an insurance provider comes from we're pairing this insurance provider to you because of your health history. Now, price is an impact and, and we care about price because we're paying that money, but I'd much rather cover that you know, ankle or cover that back that you've got a pre-existing condition with, with a more expensive provider than just rec making a recommendation based on price. So going through your super fund, that's an option, um, but they've got one insurance provider. So if you're not happy with that outcome, then um, have a chat to a financial advisor, making sure you're having a really robust discussion around your health history because that will have a massive impact on which insurance provider is best suited for you. So there you have it. I would encourage anyone to reach out to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help. I'd love to introduce you to a quality financial advisor to review your insurance, to take out some insurance, to get some recommendations based on your situation. If you've already got an advisor and you haven't reviewed your policy for some time, one, why haven't they written to you? But honestly, <laughs> go back and, uh, and speak with them uh, because they actually service the policy and they're in your corner. Phil Thompson, Skywell, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. I run a money podcast and a lot of people are like, wow, you must know so much about the markets, investing and all that stuff. Well, the truth is I have some secret sauce. Every day I use the Australian Financial Review app as part of my subscription and it just keeps my finger on the pulse with what's happening around the world in Australia in relation to companies, politics, all the stuff. So you can also be like me. Well, you probably don't want to be like me. However, you can also get access to all the stuff that I use to prepare podcasts and keep my finger on the pulse. So if this type of analysis and information is something that you want to plug into your life, you might be thinking, what can I do? Well, you can invest in your success with a subscription to the Financial Review. Subscribe during the end of financial year sale to save 50% or more for your first three months. Visit afr.com forward slash subscribe. That's afr.com forward slash subscribe. The offer ends on 30th of June. Terms and conditions apply.